Welcome to eBible Fellowship's Sunday Bible Study. For broadcast times in your area of these studies, visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com. And now it's time to begin our Sunday study with your speaker, Chris McCann. Good afternoon and welcome to eBible Fellowship's Bible Study in our Sunday Online Fellowship. Today is study number 8 of Joel chapter 2. And we're going to be reading Joel 2 verses 11 through 14. And Jehovah shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word. For the day of Jehovah is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Therefore also now, saith Jehovah, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto Jehovah your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent, and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto Jehovah your God? And I'll stop reading there. Now, last time we were looking at the great army of God, which is made up of all of God's elect. And then God was describing the great day of his wrath as very terrible, very fearful. And he concluded verse 11 with this statement, and who can abide it? And that word abide is a word that um, ties in with some other language we've noticed in the Bible concerning Judgment Day. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says in, um, ver- I'll begin, I'll begin reading in verse 11, for, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. And then in verse 14, If any man's work abide, which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire." So here God is speaking of the day, declaring the work. And that's Judgment Day. It will declare the work um, of the gospel, the work of the people of God involved in the gospel. It was their work, wood, hay, stubble, or gold, silver, precious stones. Or, to put it another way, was their work individuals that became truly saved, or that just simply heard the gospel with their physical ears and never became saved. Well, the fire of Judgment Day, the spiritual fire that God initiated on May 21, 2011, will reveal one or the other. By the time we get through this period of time, it will become evident, and those that are enduring to the end or abiding the flame that that is they're continuing steadfastly in faithfulness 
to God's word only because God is holding them fast and not allowing them to go back to the world or church or former doctrine. He's holding them in his hands or they cannot turn back and and that will result in their going through the fire. The third part goes through the fire as we read in Zechariah 13. And, and let's look at that too because that relates to abiding uh, as it says who can abide it that that's also um, the question that was asked in Revelation 6 and then we'll go to Zechariah 13 Revelation 6 verse 17 for the great day of his wrath has come and who shall be able to stand that's the same idea now in Zechariah 13 it says in verses 8 and nine, and it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith Jehovah, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein, and I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call my name, and I will hear them. I will say, It is my people, and they shall say, Jehovah is my God. There God says he will bring the third part through the fire. And let's just look at one other verse that relates to this. In Malachi, Malachi 3, uh, verses 2 and 3. But who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appeareth? And there's both those ideas from Revelation 6.17 and from uh, 1 Corinthians 3 of abiding. Who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soul. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto Jehovah an offering in righteousness. It's really uh, amazing how God's word fits together concerning his plan to try his people, a fiery trial of faith, we read in First Peter, which also fits, doesn't it? Why does it say a fiery trial of faith? Because it is God's plan in the day of judgment for a very likely period of 1,600 days, which is 40 times 40, and the 40 is the number of testing, to put the flames to the the professed true believers that had come outside of the church and to see whether they are true believers. Are you really saved? Am I really saved? Well, um, certainly this time period after the tribulation, in these days after that tribulation, when the sun has gone dark and the light of the gospel is out and the door of heaven is shut, it has been... Uh, definitely a trying time for all professed true believers. And we've seen many that have turned back uh, in this period of time, and yet others continue on. Why? Why is that? And And why does it agree so well with these verses that speak of God um, uh, testing his people, and he even tells us you have a need of patience. And after having done the will of God, and it, it's no coincidence that the the word patience 
itself identifies with a trial or a test. In James uh, chapter 1, it says in, in verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. And so when God says you have a need of patience, he's saying you have a need to have your faith tried by fire. And 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 then it says in James chapter 1, in verse 12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. And there is a statement that um, it, well, it's a, if you knew the the period of time we're living in, you probably could write a statement like that, a statement that fits so perfectly. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation or testing. When will testing very likely be completed? Sixteen hundred days from May twenty one, twenty eleven. For when he is tried. Now that's past because you've endured temptation. You've gone through the fire of this prolonged period of judgment day. And so when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. And isn't it interesting? The crown of life is eternal life. It is that crown the people of God receive at the end of their life or at the end of the world. And... It's the same thing that's in view with 1 Corinthians chapter 9 as God speaks of running a race. He says in 1 Corinthians 9.24, Know ye not that they which run in a race, and that's the word furlong, the same word furlong that's in Revelation 14, 1600 furlongs. This is singular. It's, It's representative of the Christian life. The, the race of running by faith, by the face of faith of Christ. And know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. And and uh, therefore, God is saying at the end of the race, the end of the furlong, there lies an incorruptible crown. It's the crown of life that, that James 1.12 said. But in order to reach that crown, you must endure temptation and and go through the trial of faith, the fiery trial of faith. You you uh, must endure to the end, as Matthew 24 tells us. For he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Or we could say, he that endureth to the end shall receive the crown of life. And it, it is remarkable how all these verses harmonize and fit together so well with what we have learned God is doing at this time Um in these days after the tribulation. All right, let, let's go back to Joel 2, and we'll read in verse 12. 
Therefore also now, saith Jehovah, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. Now, Joel 2, the entire chapter up until this point, has been focused on Judgment Day. It has been focused on the prolonged period of time known as Judgment Day. And uh, and yet now God is making a switch. He's uh, he's going to discuss salvation. Now, now, why would he do this? Well, God always does this in the Bible. He he can focus, for instance, as we've seen in the Book of Revelation. He can describe um, the Great Tribulation, the end of the world, and then revert back to a discussion on. His whole plan throughout history, his whole salvation program, as he he did in Revelation six with with the um, very colored horses, and God can do this from uh, chapter to chapter, from paragraph to paragraph, or verse to verse. It it's his um, prerogative. It, it's according to how he has designed the Bible. Now he is just presented the end of the world, and remember, this is the book of Joel. It was written hundreds of years before the coming of Christ and and before the completion of the Bible in the first century A.D. It was written hundreds of years before the church age began, and during the church age, God would send forth the gospel of salvation. It was the day of salvation, and it was written thousands of years before the end of the church age and the time of the great tribulation and the second part of the great tribulation when God would save a great multitude of people from the nations of the world. So, of course, to to present Judgment Day, look, this is what's going to happen, and then sort of um, take a few steps back to say, but now... As he says, therefore also now, at this time in the Old Testament, in and, and this would again have application during the church age, even during the little season of latter rain, but now, now, before that day comes, as God does say very uh, directly in Zephaniah 2, before the day come to pass, before the decree come. That, that uh, he, there he says, seek Jehovah while he may be found. And that's basically what's being said here. Therefore also now, saith Jehovah, turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. Turn to Jehovah. And, and then he says, with all your heart. And of course, what man can turn to God with all of his heart, it requires God to turn the man to give him a new heart and a new spirit before an individual could turn with everything within him in his soul existence because a man naturally has a spiritually dead heart and a heart of stone a heart in hope and rebellion against God that's shaking its fist at God. It will not turn. 
Now God says in Jeremiah 31, wherever we we read uh, God commanding to turn, and uh, you know you hear people say, well, God wouldn't give a command uh, unless He gave would give the ability or or if the person had the ability to obey it. Well, that's not true, and we'll see that when we get to the next verse in Joel, very definitely, that God does give commands in the Bible, all sorts of commands. Man, in his spiritually dead condition, cannot obey. God speaks to man as the responsible agent, uh, as he was created to be, and, and when man was created, man could obey the commandments of God, but since the fall into sin, he cannot obey. That doesn't mean he's not obligated or responsible to obey. God still views man as though he were responsible to obey every commandment in the Bible. And if man fails to obey, well, that's just further sin against him. It says in Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 18, I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus, Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised as a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art Jehovah my God. Surely, after that I was turned, I repented. And that is the definition that God would have us to find in the Bible whenever we come across that word turn. And God is commanding sinners to turn from their sin and and turn to him. Well, he expects us to to do um, a search of the Bible. Remember, compare Scripture with Scripture. That's always been the principle as uh, of understanding the Word of God. And when we look up the word turn, we find that um, there's a request here, Turn thou me, and I shall be turned. And then the statement is made, Surely after that I was turned, I repented. And that is the only way a man can repent biblically or satisfactorily concerning a commandment of God. God must first turn him. Then after being turned, he he can repent. God must first give us a new heart and a new spirit, and then we can obey his commandments and we can repent from the the evil way we were going. And that's what is in view here in Joel 2, verse 12. Turn ye even to me with all your heart. There's the clue, because a man can't do that unless God first gives him a new heart. And with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. Well, fasting, we're not going to go into this at this point, but remember the New Testament speaks of prayer and fasting. And fasting in Isaiah 58, God defines as bringing the gospel so that the poor and the needy might hear and become saved, is what the language there really points to. And and so spiritually, fasting has nothing to do with not eating, but it involves sharing the true gospel of the Bible. And so... 
God again. This verse has application in the time period in which God is saving. We can call it the day of salvation. And, and he is commanding that man turn to him with all their heart. That is, be saved according to um, a, a right salvation, which means God must do the saving. And once you're saved, turn with fasting. Bring the true gospel of the Bible with weeping and with mourning. Now remember that wonderful psalm, Psalm 126. And we'll just read the last two verses of Psalm 126. It says, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And there's uh, two statements here, sowing in tears and going forth weeping, bearing precious seed. And uh, and again, sowing and bearing seed relates to the day of salvation, the time in which the people of God uh, went forth. How beautiful were the feet of them that brought glad tidings of great joy. Were, were a statement similar to that the Bible gives us. When we went forth with the gospel, it, it was like sowing seed upon the hearts of men. And here's a Bible track, that's sowing seed. Here we're talking to our friends about salvation, that's sowing seed. Here, listen to this faithful program, that's sowing seed. And there is just an enormous outpouring of sowing seed. And God would give the increase if anyone um, who heard the word of God, the seed was sown upon their heart, if they happened to be one of God's elect, that is, of course, as God brought his people into the path of his elect, then they would become saved. That's how God designed his salvation program. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And and yet God likens the sowing of seed with weeping and mourning. Uh, uh, the time period of sorrow is the time in which God was still saving. And isn't that interesting that the true believers were uh, typified as weeping and mourning during that time, and then at the end of God's salvation plan, Judgment Day, it's the time of harvest or bringing in the sheaves, and then there's rejoicing. And uh, that's why God says, for instance, in Luke chapter 6, in verse 21, Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. And at the time when the people of God were weeping and sowing in tears, the world was laughing and mocking and ridiculing. And and God says of them, uh, in also in Luke 6, verse 25, Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. And see, the uh, thing is reversed. During the time of sowing seed, the people of God mourn and weep as as they're bringing the seed. The world laughs, it's full, it's happy, 
doesn't have a care in the world. But then everything is turned around. It changes on Judgment Day. God uses the language of himself and his people laughing, rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. And the world is weeping and mourning and full of sorrow. We we see this in Revelation chapter 18. When Babylon is judged and the kings of the earth are weeping or the merchants of the earth are weeping at the destruction of Babylon, they're no longer rejoicing and happy. And spiritually, that's how God um, paints the picture of Judgment Day. So again, uh, here in Joel 2.12, where, where God is saying, Turn to him with your heart, all your heart, and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, that is, become saved, and then bring that gospel that saved you to others. And then it says in verse 13 of Joel 2, And rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto Jehovah your God. And and here again, here again, God is commanding to turn. Now we've discussed that. We We know that an individual cannot turn unless God first turn him. But what about rend your heart and not your garments? Now, now again, uh, I mentioned earlier, some people say, well, God would not give a command in the Bible if the mankind did not have an ability to obey it. As uh, they say when the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Well, they say, well, uh, you you have to have the ability to obey it, or God would not be just. He he would not be right for him to command something that man cannot perform the doing of, and they are not reading the Bible. And here is another. Uh, there's there's uh, all kinds of statements in the Bible where God commands people to do something they without any question, do not have the, the ability to perform. And this is one of them. Rend your heart and not your garments. And the word rend is also translated as tear. And and it, it would relate to a broken and a contrite heart at, at where uh, that God will not despise. Uh, and, and yet it is a command. Rend your heart. Now, um, in, in the Bible, we read in many places of people rending their garments. And sometimes true believers are rending their garments. For instance, we know that Job rent his mantle in uh, the book of Esther. It says in Esther chapter 4 and verse 1, When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a louder and a bitter a loud and bitter cry and was more was Mordecai a true child of God yes and 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 so the action of renting your garments was a fine thing to do uh, other believers again i mentioned job and others have also rent their garments. There's nothing wrong with that in in the Bible. 
it indicates a brokenness, a brokenness. And, and, and that's why God would permit it. Uh, it, it was sort of a sign, uh, an indicator that someone is broken before God. The renting of the garment pictures the renting of the heart. And, and so here someone is going before God, renting their garment, putting on sackcloth and ashes, and crying out to God. And, and God had no difficulty with that. But the problem is, not only true believers would rent their garments. We read of Ahab, of uh, uh, one individual that rent his garments, and he certainly wasn't saved. And in Second Chronicles 23, it says, beginning in verse 12 and into verse 13, Now when Athaliah heard the noise of the people running and praising the king, she came to the people into the house of Jehovah, and she looked, and behold, the king stood at his pillar at the entering in, and the princes and the trumpets by the king, and all the people of the land rejoiced and sounded with trumpets, also the singers with instruments of music, and such as taught to sing praise. Then Athaliah rent her clothes and said, Treason, treason. Now, uh, Athaliah was a very wicked woman. She was uh, on par or equal to Ahab uh, for wickedness, and 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 both Ahab and Athaliah rent their garments. They took a sign that indicated brokenness, and and they applied it. But of course, with them, uh, it was just an outward thing. Anybody can rent their clothes. Anybody can rip their clothing. And, and act like they're broken before God and act as though, um, they, they are so grieved. It's as though their heart is broken. But of course, God is not fooled by outward actions, just like God was not fooled by, uh, Jews who were circumcised. They were circumcised outwardly, physically, but not inwardly. And, and speaking of that, let's go to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 10. And here's another command that God gives in his word, the Bible. And this was to Jewish men. It says in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. Well, uh, go ahead, try and obey that command, and and get a sharp knife, and and uh, of course uh, anybody attempting to circumcise the foreskin of their heart would die physically. You, it's an impossible command to obey physically. There, there's no way that a man can obey that particular command, just as. There's no way a man can obey the command, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved of himself. But God gives commands, impossible to obey commands, in the Bible in order to lead men to God. That is, when God says, Turn with all your heart and turn to me, then he expects the man to realize, But I cannot... I cannot do it, O Lord. And come back to God and say, O Lord, I cannot turn. Turn thou me and I shall turn. 
Or when God says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. He expects the man to come back to God and say, Oh Lord, uh, I believe with a little little bit of belief I can muster up within, but I cannot believe with all my heart and with all my soul. I cannot believe unto salvation in the way that you require. Uh, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. That is, grant me the faith of Christ, and, and may I be saved by his faith and not my own faith. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that faith not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. This is what God expects and requires the reader of the Bible uh, to come to these conclusions, to realize that these commands are impossible commands to obey, that nobody could ever have sufficiently obeyed them, and then to come to God on our hands and knees, crying out, O Heavenly Father, Thou Son of David, have mercy upon me, and and so forth, in the day of salvation, and which we're no longer living in. So God is not looking for people to come crying like that today, that he might save them today, although we can approach unto him and say, and, and beseech him, O Lord, having had mercy, have mercy, as we acknowledge that God would have had to do the work of saving us before he shut the door of heaven. But but anyway, here in Deuteronomy 10.16, the command is given. It doesn't say it's a parable. It, it's within the law book of Deuteronomy, as as some people say, oh, you you have to read the Bible literally, you know. It's only when Christ said he was speaking in a parable that you can understand it's a parable. Well, read the Bible literally in, in Deuteronomy 10.16 and, uh, and and try to carry it out and you'll end up dead. And no, the, God wrote the whole Bible the same, word, the same way. Christ, who is the Word made flesh in speaking parables, was teaching us how to understand all the Bible. And, and so circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. And then, uh, as men realize, well, I cannot do that, O Lord. Uh, I, I cannot obey that command. Further reading in the Bible, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 explains where God would, would fill out that command further. It says there, in Jehovah thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love Jehovah thy God, with all thine heart and with all thy soul, that thou mayest live. You see, as the Bible says, in in the context of believing, that with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Let me find that and and read that, make sure I get it correct. In Matthew 19, with the rich man. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And and then Jesus said, in verse 23 of Matthew 19, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, It is easier for a camel 
to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? Now, notice the question. Who then can be saved? It is regarding salvation. And here is the answer of God, the answer of the Bible. In verse 26, But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible. What is impossible? Salvation being saved. But with God all things are possible. That is the salvation of the sinner is possible with God. When God commands circumcise your heart, well, Jehovah God will circumcise your heart. When God commands turn and repent, well, uh, uh, Jehovah God says after that we are turned by Him, then we repent. When God commands to believe, well, it's Jehovah God that helps our unbelief and so forth. It is all of God. It is all of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. He gets the glory. He's done all the work concerning salvation. Mankind does nothing and is not able to do anything. We can, uh, uh, we can hear the commands of God to believe, to repent, to turn. We can hear these things. We can acknowledge them. And, and I'm speaking of the time when God was saving. And then we have to come back to God and say, Oh Lord, I can't do it. And, and this is why uh, the Bible is so full of language uh, of men coming to God, crying out for mercy, beating upon their breast, because there was nothing else they could do. That was the only thing God permitted and that was no guarantee that they would become saved. It, it was only a, the proper approach unto God. And then it had to be left in his hands. Well, uh, here in Joel, God is um, laying out his salvation program. And he says, And rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto Jehovah your God. For he is gracious and merciful slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. You know, it, it's uh, refreshing in a way to read these words, to, to read these truths concerning God, uh, because we've spent so much time talking of the day of wrath, the day of the shut door, the time the light of the gospel is out, the end of salvation, and and we rightly were spending time on that because that's the time we're living in. And these verses do not apply uh, concerning God uh, saving people today. They had their time of, of application, but still it is uh, good uh, to read these things and, and for us to remember that God is a gracious and merciful God. And God was slow to anger. You know, we're we're living in the time finally, finally after 13,000 years of history, 
and, and 13,023 to be exact. And in May 21, 2011, it was 13,023 when God finally shut the door of heaven and stopped saving people and ended his salvation program. But for millennium, God was slow to anger and, and long sufferingly patient. Uh, this is, this is the nature of God. And, and during, uh, the time in which he was saving, uh, he very deliberately kept the door of heaven open. He saw the, the terrible, uh, sinfulness of mankind, but he had another plan to save his people. And so he put up with the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction for thousands of years in order to carry out the plan of mercy upon the vessels of mercy. We read in Psalm 103, in Psalm 103, it says in beginning in verse 8, Jehovah is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. And again, it's, it's beautiful language of the mercy of God. And, and day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, century after century, millennium after millennium, God was merciful. It was the day of salvation wherein uh, an individual, a sinner in the world, could potentially perhaps become saved that day because of God's long-suffering nature. God uh, kept the door of salvation open until he saved the last of his elect. And this word slow, the word slow is translated as long-suffering. In Numbers 14, it says in verse 15, Now if thou shalt kill all this people as one man, and uh, this is Moses interceding for Israel, it, and speaking to God, Now if thou shalt kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, Because Jehovah was not able to bring this people into the land which he sware unto them, therefore he has slain them in the wilderness. And now I beseech thee, let the power of my Jehovah be great, according as thou hast spoken, saying, Jehovah is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people according unto the greatness of thy mercy, and as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And Jehovah said, I have pardon according to thy word. The, the great long-suffering God, the, the God of great mercy and forgiveness, the God that pardons uh, guilty sinners through 
His gracious and kind and good salvation program. This is the God that has um, waited all through the history of the world until this time in these days to finish saving the last one of his elect. And then comes the time of his wrath, the time of law, uh, um, that the law of God demands justice for all the transgressions of the sinners against it. You know, we read in the New Testament, in Second Peter, in chapter 3, where God speaks of his long-suffering nature, and it says in Second Peter 3, verse 8, But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And, and then it continues to describe the day of wrath. But notice that God is long-suffering to usward, not to everyone in the world, not to every human, but to his elect. He was not willing that any of the elect should perish. And that's the only way that statement can be understood. Because otherwise, it, it makes God a weak and uh, ineffectual God that that he's not willing to that that any person perish. And yet we know very well that the vast majority of people do perish. No, no, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, when he wills something, it comes to pass. And he's not willing, because he has elected a people, predestinated them to salvation, according to the pleasure of, the good pleasure of his will. He's not willing that any of them should perish, and not a single one do. Everyone whose name was written in the Lamb's book of life did become saved and and did not perish, but came to repentance granted to them by the gift of God. God gave the gift of repentance. When he gave them a new heart, they turned from that old stony heart of sin. But concerning long-suffering, notice that it relates to the time of coming to repentance. And it says in verse 15, of Second Peter 3. Here the Lord defines what long-suffering really means. In Second Peter 3.15, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. That is, as long as God was slow to anger, long-sufferingly patient with the world, it, it uh, it was a result of salvation. That is, he was saving people during that time. And that's why he was waiting. It, it, it was to complete his salvation work. Now, uh, also, we read in James, regarding God's long-suffering nature, it says in James 5, in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brethren, Unto the coming of the Lord, 
Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth. Now God, remember in, in the Gospel of John, likens himself to a husbandman. And what is the precious fruit? Those that he saves, the elect. So the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth. He waits to bring the fruit in to save those that he intends to save and has long patience for it. He's long suffering until he received the early and latter rain. And, and that means God is long suffering during the church age when the early rain was falling and the first fruits came in. And God is long-sufferingly patient during the the second part of the Great Tribulation, the latter rain period, when the final fruits, the great multitude, are brought in. But what is implied by this statement? Well, the father, the husbandman, waits long-sufferingly, and Second Peter 3.15 says that is salvation, Long-suffering of the Lord is salvation. And he waits until he receives the rains, early and latter. And then, what is the implication once the latter rain is completed? Well, the implication is that the fruit is brought in, all to be saved were saved, and he no longer will be long-suffering patient. God will cease to be long-suffering, and then he will deal with unsaved mankind according to law, according to the righteous judgment of God, and he will mete out justice to the sinners. It will be the day of wrath, and no more um, slow-to-anger patience, no more waiting for rain. The rain has come in. No more waiting for the fruit because the fruit has been brought in. Everyone has become saved that was to be saved. And what do we know? And, and what do we know beforehand during the time of the Great Tribulation when God opened up the scriptures to reveal much information? He revealed the duration of the Great Tribulation, the 23 years, and he revealed the latter rain period beginning in September 1994 and going about 17 years until May 21, 2011, the time the Great Tribulation concluded, the latter rain ceased to fall. And and again, based upon James 5, verse 7, what would we expect to occur at the time the latter rain ceases to fall? We would expect the wrath of God, that he no longer would be long-sufferingly patient, that there would be no more salvation because God is only long-suffering for the reason of salvation. And, and that's exactly what he did on that date when the latter rain ceased and all the fruit, the precious fruit, was gathered in the sense of salvation and and that ended the the um, time period of God's patience. You know, in uh, in another way, um, God lays out this this same idea in First Peter three, beginning in verse eighteen. 
it says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime or aforetime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few that his eight souls were saved by water. So God actually set up a historical uh, picture, a, a, a historical uh, analogy of what he would do at the end, or, or do finally with his whole salvation program. And God was long-sufferingly patient while the ark was preparing. That's what it says in Hebrews 11, in verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. So the ark, the, the building of the ark, was salvation, is, is what it pointed to. And, and the ark typified Christ, and the ark had to be completed, and all the souls, eight souls, had to enter in, and then God shut the door. He was long-suffering, 1 Peter 3, verse 20 says, while the ark was a-preparing, because that equals salvation, but once the ark was completed, and all the people and all the animals were in the ark, God shut the door and ceased being long-suffering. And and it's not a coincidence that that um, statement to Noah, yet seven days and I'll bring the flood, go uh, applies in Second Peter 3, verse 8, in the context where God is speaking of being long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, that he tells us a day is as a thousand years in that very context. And 7,000 years later, on May 21, 2011, the date that has the underlying Hebrew calendar date of 217, which matches perfectly with the very day God ceased to be long-suffering in the days of Noah and shut the door of the ark, it, that is no coincidence. God is putting his finger on that day and saying, yes, the day of the latter rain ends, the day of the great tribulation concludes, May 21, 2011, is also the day 7,000 years later from the flood that I will once again stop being long-sufferingly patient with mankind and I will destroy them in my wrath and and I'll begin with shutting the door of heaven just as I shut the door of the ark and and that's exactly what God did thanks for joining us for eBible fellowship Sunday Bible study for more information or to hear additional Bible studies be sure to visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com